You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. My name is Hilary Charlesworth and I'm delighted to be convening this evening. Before I uh, introduce Anne, let me acknowledge that I, at least I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was never ceded. So it's a great pleasure to have this session with Anne as part of the Festival of Illa. And it seems really important. Uh, every, every discipline, every institution has its foundation stories. And I think it's really important to sort of go back to the beginning of Illa and to think about some of the uh, paths that were put in right at the early at the earliest start and then how how Illa has developed. So I think Anne uh, with this group needs really no introduction at all. But the important thing just for this evening is that she's she was the foundation director of Illa and we'll be hearing more about that. And one of the really interesting aspects of Anne's career, how that she's been uh, a very original and inventive and generous and energetic creator of intellectual institutions. We're going to be speaking about um, the Institute for International Law and the Humanities today. But uh, I think since I've been at Melbourne Law School over the past five years, I've been incredibly aware and have profited from and doing a different sort of intellectual uh, institution building through the laureate program in international law that has only recently concluded. So it's a real celebration of Anne's capacities and generosity in the sense of institution, intellectual institution buildings that have really have a whole lot of ripple effects for all those people lucky enough uh, to be around them. So, and welcome to this conversation. I feel it's a bit odd because I think you're a bit too young to be uh, in this position of uh, the uh, a founder. But going back to 2005, uh, what prompted you to establish the Institute right back then? Um, was there something you were inspired by or something that you were reacting to? But tell us, tell us that origin story. Well, thank you, Hilary. And I'd like to begin by joining with Hilary in acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and paying my respects to their elders past and present. And I'd like to thank also Sandhya Pahuja for inviting us to have this conversation as part of Illa's 15th anniversary celebrations and thank Annabelle Duncan for putting it together. So, yes, in establishing Illa with um, colleagues at Melbourne, and I'll talk about that in a moment, I think there were um, two sets of inspiration. So one would be intellectual and one would be institutional. Um, so the first then really is quite a personal story of an intellectual formation in the different locations in which I'd studied and taught law. And they really were very different. Um, so I studied for my first law degree at the University of Queensland in the 1980s, just to really situate my age. Um, and at the time, UQ was a very 
black letter law school um, in an extremely politically conservative period in the history of this state of Queensland in which I grew up. So for those of you who aren't um, well-versed in the history of Queensland, the 1980s was the final years of um, the 19-year reign of a, a premier called um, Joe Bjelke-Peterson, who was really something of a, a Trump um, uh, before his time. So um, to give a sense of what that meant for my law school education, we must have been one of the few cohorts, I think, to have been taught Hayek non-critically and non-ironically as part of our core jurisprudence course. Um, it was a central tenet of the legal education I received at that time that law was political, but this went to say, this was from an extremely right-wing perspective, that the rest of Australia was had gone completely astray with things like the Kuwata decision or the Dams decision of the High Court, and we in Queensland were the last bastions of proper um, law. So um, that created a certain anarchic spirit amongst the stu students, I would say. Um, we then, I then arrived in London in um, 1991 to study for an LLM where I specialised in international law and I, took, I could take one extra subject, which was jurisprudence, as my fourth subject. And I think that was very formative for me. I was taught by remarkable professors who thought through international law so Philippe Sands um, taught me international environmental law and I often tell him can't have really been quite like this, but he, he was fresh from studying with Philip Allett at Cambridge and I feel that in my memory he and James Cameron arrived and basically held up Eunomia, which had just been published, and said this is the theory and this class is the practice. So they were kind of experimenting with what you could do with um, international environmental law, and they're about to go off, of course, to the Rio conference, which was at, towards the end of that degree in 1992. Um, Rosalind Higgins brought a New Haven sensibility to international human rights law. Shana Douglas-Scott brought her kind of pluralist philosoph philosophical approach to the study of European Union law, and William Twining, who's an incredibly generous thinker, um, taught me jurisprudence with guest lectures from all sorts of people from Jack Balkan to Ronald Dworkin. So that was the immediate post-Cold War moment, 1991 to 1992. Everyone was just starting to think about what might happen if they took international law out for a spin, but there wasn't yet a sense of liberal triumphalism. It wasn't yet inevitable what it would become. And there was just a real sense of possibility. Something was going to happen. Um, then I returned to Australia to a position at La Trobe University, which was just in its rock and roll law school phase, perhaps now being reinvented um, by some of our rock and roll colleagues. And I was taken under the wing of a group of extraordinary scholars who were doing really radical, groundbreaking work. So Margaret Thornton, with whom this festival of conversations began, Judy Gerbich, Ian Duncanson, Greta Bird, Rob McQueen, Adrian Howe, Sue Davies. Um, so we taught courses with Marx, involving readings by Marx and Foucault by E.P. Thompson and the Albion's Fatal Tree crowd, Stuart Hall, um, Patricia Williams. It was really a far cry from the UQ situation. But it was also a moment which really seems far away now, I have to say, when managerial managerialism was just starting to take hold in Australian law schools. 
So deans and heads of school were just being appointed, just started being appointed rather than elected, but we could still vote on policies. And um, it was really exhilarating to have a feeling of what workplace democracy could look like in that sense, and it's really hard to remember that now, um, that sense of a self-governing community of scholars. And then the final step was um, beginning my PhD with Hilary Charlesworth. Uh, so one of my memories of this LLM year in London was walking around to different coffee shops and the old British Museum reading room with a dog-eared, heavily marked up photocopy, which we had to do in those days, of feminist approaches to international law that Hillary, that had just come out in the American Journal. And I think it's really hard to overstate what it was like to read that article then. It was just revolutionary. I think it still is when I go back and look at it. Um, and I was really fortunate uh, to have Hillary as a supervisor. So as you, I'm sure many of you know, she's formidable, but intellectually generous, non-dogmatic and completely unafraid. And I've swapped notes about this with other students of Hillary's and also I think with other people of my generation who had similar types of supervisors. So Tony Angie speaks in similar terms of David Kennedy and a number of James Crawford students have had the same experience. And I think many of us are really feel very lucky to have had supervisors who insist on rigor, um, but who are very open to methodological and theoretical pluralism and don't use their erudition as a weapon. Um, so there's the backstory. Um, so I, when I um, arrived at Melbourne Law School, uh, appointed in 1999, there are a number of distinguished international legal scholars already here. Um, in fact, they've all now left, but Gillian Triggs, Tim McCormack and Diotto. And there were also was a lot of support for critical theory with people like Jenny Morgan. Uh, and most importantly, the Dean Michael Cromlin was enormously supportive and a genuine pluralist. So that's that intellectual story, a sense of kind of everything opening up, but a really eclectic intellectual formation that wasn't dogmatic and just a feeling of being fortunate to be in incredible places at the right moment. So the institutional side then is um, in 2005, I was invited to take up what was then the Institute for International um, for Comparative and International Law. Uh, and the then director, Gillian Triggs, was leaving and I was asked to rethink and rename it. And the, constant, and the um, comparativists weren't interested. They already had their own gigs elsewhere. So I decided to shift the focus to international law and the humanities, which reflected my own interests, but also my colleagues. And until then, um, centres and institutes, I think, had very much focused on supporting the work of um, senior professors. So they'd really been often just a one-person show. Um, so we'd been running events and having lecturers visit, but without any support. And I wanted to turn the institute into a program-based institute that gave my colleagues space to lead programs um, and develop their own profiles as part of this broader collective. So I had a look back at the initial program directors for that first year, um, and in addition to me, they were Jürgen Kurtz, who's now at EUI, um, who was directing a program on international economic law, Jackie Peel, who was at the time, which seems unbelievable now, my doctoral student um, doing amazing work on science, democracy and international law. She now directs the Melbourne Climate Futures Program. Di Otto, who would become the second ILA director in 2012 when I left to take up a research fellowship. 
and who directed the program in international human rights law, Michelle Foster, who directed the program in international refugee law and now directs the Macmillan Centre on Statelessness, Jenny Beard and Sandia Pahuja, who co-directed the Law and Development Program, and I think Sun was just about to go off to Birkbeck at that point, and then Peter Rush, who directed a program on theories of sovereignty and jurisdiction. And then over, the, over time, we were joined by many new wonderful appointments to Melbourne Law School, so Margaret Young, Sean McVeigh, Andrew Mitchell, Tanya Voon, Kirsty Gover, and Genovese, Mark McMillan, John Tobin, and then since my time as director, many more colleagues. So the aim was to create a space for that community of scholars, as well as for the doctoral students and postdocs working with us. And I think the final thing I'd say is that over the years, that's been the, the beating heart of ILA. It's what I'm most proud of, and I'm sure my colleagues would say the same, the remarkable cohorts of PhD students and postdocs who've been central to the life of ILLA and also um, the Laureate Program. And I think styling it as international law and the humanities did a couple of things. It allowed us a degree of experimentation because it wasn't an established field. There was, of course, law and the humanities, but less had been done under this kind of banner of international law and the humanities. So we could be more amateurish. I might come back to that. And it offered a counterweight to the other tendency in interdisciplinary work in international law, which was to engage through the social sciences, through economics, um, sociology or psychology, uh, and it allowed us to do something more humanistic. Thank you. And um, I, well, I was, <laughs> that was a fantastic uh, sense of where you've, where, where you've come and, and, uh, I think it's it's especially interesting. One of my observations is how many sort of very experimental and interesting scholars have come out of Queensland. Uh, and it's so I, I don't want to develop a theory here about repressive political regimes and uh, but it is it is it is very striking indeed. So that's wonderful to get a sense of the context in which you set up Illa. And then I suppose in a more um, disciplinary way, how, how would you, in 2005, how would you describe then, I think you've given us a little idea of the uh, relationship between international law and the humanities in 2005, and uh, in the sense you were saying you were able to be uh, more, well, to use the word uh, amateur in that sense, uh, but and how has it developed over the last 15 years? Can you draw some sort of large uh, large picture sort of directions for us? Yeah, so I think I would also tell this story in two ways. One um, would be more optimistic perhaps than the other. Um, so on the one hand, I think we've seen a real shift in the place of this kind of work in the academy, and it may be that... Um, people who are here with us in the seminar might have reflections on this as well. I'm sure they will. Um, but I would say there's been a dramatic change over this period. So I still have um, a memory when I started out as a legal academic in the early 1990s of struggles that had taken place in law schools and were still taking place in law schools. 
And of course, we can think famously of the place of the struggles over critical legal studies at Harvard. But we were seeing really similar struggles in law schools in Australia, um, particularly at a handful of kind of renegade or more radical law schools where it really looked like critical legal thinking might, you know, triumph. Um, so there are a number of them. Latrobe was one, Griffith Law School, Macquarie was another. And, um, you know, I think there were many stories of people who were just a little ahead of me, uh, a little older than me, who had not gained tenure or been driven out of the legal academy because they did feminist work or critical work or post-colonial work. So in an odd way, I would say that managerialism perhaps helped here because um, managerialism doesn't really care about substance, I would say. Um, if you have big popular classes and research that's enthusiastically received by colleagues or strong public engagement, it's much harder um, for conservative senior colleagues to block their young colleagues. I might be wrong about that, but um, that, that's my sense. And we've all watched The Chair, I would guess, on Netflix. And so if you think there of that story of how the young popular professor, um, you know, there was an attempt by her conservative senior, somewhat sad older male colleague um, to block her. But the senior colleague is, in fact, the one whose power is waning because none of the students want to come to his classes and he's not very interesting. Well, it's hard to remember how when I started out, often in that scenario, it would have been the old white male professor who triumphed and the younger uh, colleague who was pushed out. That was really common as a scenario. Of course, that is kind of what happens in the chair, but I think she goes off to Yale or something, so she wins in the end. So there's the good news story. I think there's a space for this kind of work in the academy that is um, more established and if people do work that's engaged and attracts students and has influence, it's much more difficult for some threatened older colleague to block them. Not impossible, but more difficult. So that's, that's the good news about bureaucracy. Um, the bad news about bureaucracy, of course, we don't really need me to go through it, but in the neoliberal managerial university, um, interdisciplinarity is often, it's almost mandatory. So. Um, often in the service of something that's quite instrumental, um, a set of problems that are meant to be solved by interdisciplinary work in some way. So it's not necessarily a great embrace of critique, but certainly interdisciplinarity is almost um, required, accompanied by a sense that it needs to be more professional to come back to that idea, which often means that a set of methods or dogmas that are kind of kind of scientific should be applied often from another field. Um, so another scientific method has the solution to all possible intellectual and social problems. Often the solution might come from economics or it might come from behavioral psychology or maybe even empiricist historiography, which I've been writing about recently. So I feel that interdisciplinarity is more kind of, um, is less experimental in that kind of climate or it has less capacity to be experimental, more demands on it to have a particular form. 
And then similarly with ELO, we wanted to create, create a community for PhD students at a time when there wasn't much attention paid in law schools to supervision and mentoring. And now, again, we've kind of gone completely the other way. So these processes have been taken up by research managers who get to manage us and our research. And there's a vision of supervision and mentoring as a bureaucratic process with ever more detailed reviews and systems that are supposed to be generalizable and offer kind of systematizable models of transferring individual skills that are decoupled from the broader person. So I've been thinking of this as something like a move from a craft model to a factory model. So we break the research process into little parts like in a factory and we can transfer these separate skills um, and we're all kind of, we can produce in that way researchers efficiently um, and we're all cogs in a machine in this production process and out the other end comes a researcher. So again, showing my age, I'm perhaps informed partly by earlier experiences in what really feels like a different world, which were, I think, much more based on a guild model or an apprenticeship model. So for instance, when I started working at a law firm, I was an articled clerk. I don't even know if this exists anymore as a, as a kind of practice, but I was an articled clerk in the firm and I had a master who was... Um, to whom I was articled. So I was in a big firm and we actually had a more kind of systematic training process, but in principle, that's how the thing worked. And similarly, as a doctoral student, um, I wasn't in a big um, bureaucratic process. I worked with Hillary and, um, and, and this person guided your work and was also a model for, for a form of life, really. So I fear that in a sense although it should be exactly what we're working towards, in some ways we're losing the sense of the scholar as a whole person, a sense of human variety and uniqueness and creativity um, and spontaneity in academic life. So perhaps I'm, you know, trying to um, have the best of both worlds and move away from the feudal model of the university where there was almost autocratic rule by professors. I'm glad that's gone but wanting to maintain a craft rather than industrial model of scholarly production and reproduction, which I would hope we can find a way to hold on to. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you, Anne. And I just should say to everybody, uh, I have a few more questions for Anne, but, but then we, we're very keen to hear from you. So uh, if you want to get in a bit early, you're welcome to put the questions in the chat and then we can, I, I can read them out or you can just wait and use the hand function if you would like to ask the question. So please, please be aware that there will be that opportunity before the hour is out. Uh, well, I, I must say, Anne, that that resonates a lot with, uh, I think, as soon as the ARC picks up a concept and makes it a tick box on a form, which it has with interdisciplinarity, that's when we should we should start worrying. But to turn to your to your own work then, uh, thinking to, to select three, three monographs, can you talk about the way, and this also I suppose serves as a nice also um, history of uh, the humanities and international law through looking at, first of all, your book that was published out of your PhD thesis, Reading Humanitarian Intervention, 
and then uh, the um, 2011 book on international authority and the responsibility to protect. And then uh, I have it right here, your um, this beautiful cover, uh, Anne's book on that's only just appeared, International Law and the Politics of History. So I'd be keen to get your take on uh, how, uh, how you've drawn on the humanities to inform those three very different uh, very different accounts of international law or your entry into three uh, three very different debates. Yeah, so I would say that each of those books uh, is deeply influenced by reading in the humanities, um, in philosophy and political theory, in literary theory, post-colonial theory and cultural theory, uh, in feminist theory and queer theory, and in history and jurisprudence. When I reflect on those three books, I notice that what shifts in that sense is the foregrounding of law as an object and of my relation to that object. I would say that becomes more and more in the foreground as you move through those three books. And partly I would say that does come out of interdisciplinary encounters. So the more I came to work with scholars who are from other disciplines or to speak to audiences who were not lawyers or not all lawyers, the more I realised that I needed to be very precise and very careful about what image of law I was conjuring up and to be as specific as possible for myself and for my audience about what I took that to be. So as a result, oddly, you might think, um, the more interdisciplinary I become, the more I talk about law. Um, and in fact, I think sometimes the most enthusiastically received critical scholarship on law can re reproduce uh, more conservative and limiting accounts of what law is. So the drama of the narrative that can make it very attractive is constructed through staging the author as a rebel or a revolutionary who's fighting the law. And the law, for this to be really dramatic, the law has to be presented as all-powerful, coherent, enforceable, um, particular readings to be inevitable or necessary, integrated, and so on. So the longer I work in and with legal material, the more I think that our fantasised relationships with and desire for law and authority are something that we all need to reflect on and take really seriously. And that perhaps goes alongside this theme I keep repeating about legal amateurism in the sense that law actually isn't that coherent um, and indeed uh, in our introduction to the Oxford Handbook on International Legal Theory, um, Florian Hoffman and I talk about the kind of bricolage approach that international legal theorists take. Uh, and we could say the same thing about our approach to the material that we work with in legal argumentation. Uh, so if we think about a standard case, cases and materials book, it's made up of all sorts of odd bits and pieces that we assemble into arguments in this very eclectic fashion. So this amateurism is such a key part of being a lawyer 
And Annalise Riles has written a really fascinating chapter on this, which I talk about in the book, in International Law and the Politics of History. And she talks about her reaction to this legal amateurism when she came to law school, having been trained in anthropology. And she said it just drove her crazy. She thought, what are these people doing with this kind of completely amateuristic approach to everything, history and anthropology and the social world? Who do they, what do they think they're up to? And she said her initial reaction was, I'm going to professionalise this amateurish discipline and teach them a thing or two about how to be proper social scientists. And then she, she subsequently realised that that was a very naive approach for an anthropologist. And in fact, the interesting question was um, to take this legal amateurism as seriously as you'd take any other form of legal knowledge. So in the latest book, I try to take that up to kind of think about what this amateurism is doing specifically in relation to the past. But I think that approach uh, to the law, to to the the materials that we're working with, a kind of approach of curiosity as um, the way that we come at these materials uh, is one that I find increasingly helpful in shaping my own writing. But... um, I had uh, asked Hillary if I could ask her a question as well. And as you'd imagine, um, Hillary was planning just to make this all about my work. So I've insisted on inserting a question here. So this is the bit where I get to ask my question, but it's a mirror question in, indeed. So um, I would like Hillary to ask you uh, the same question, uh, how you would um, think about the way the humanities has informed your own work. So here... Um, there's a trajectory we could trace um, beginning, as I mentioned, with feminist approaches to international law, this really groundbreaking piece in 1991 that I think changed a lot of things for a lot of people and was published in the American Journal of International Law. Um, the work on human rights ritualism that you did for the Laureate Fellowship that you ran from 2010 to 2015. So this work drew on law, but also literary studies, history and anthropology to explore international human rights law through this lens of ritual and ritual ritualistic practices. And then your more recent work, um, you've been doing on art and international law, which was presented as the general course at the Hague Academy in 2019. So it's clear that the humanities and I would say social sciences, have been a rich source of inspiration in your work and you're also someone who thinks very much in and through law. So I wonder how you describe the relationship of international law and the humanities in your work. Well, thanks, Anne. I'd, I'd say um, until really you, you posed that question, I, I would not have thought that I was an international law and the humanities scholar at all. Uh, I, I, I guess I wasn't quite sure uh, what label I might wear, but I mean, your question when I was thinking about it this afternoon and what I found interesting listening to you, Anne, is that um, I'm, I am a creature of legal education in the 1970s, so a decade before you, and but I think there are quite a few similarities. So I was at Melbourne Law School as a law student 
Uh, and in those days, of course, we did law as an undergraduate degree. I did, as most people did, an arts law degree. And uh, so, and my uh, my arts degree was in Indian studies, a long lamented department at the University of Melbourne that was the most astonishing and wonderful intellectual experience. And I did a co-major in, in philosophy. And I, I remember um, really having a very clear view as a student in the 1970s of law as just a series of deadening rules. It was just terrible. And I kept wanting to drop out and then one thing or another, sometimes it was just laziness stopped me doing it. So I just thought there was this grinding, horrible sort of law degree to go on. But the thing that made university worthwhile was this fantastically imaginative and exciting arts degree. And I remember sometimes even making the trip, it wasn't a very long trip, from the law cloister across uh, Carsonia Court to the old arts building where my lectures were based. It was just like entering another world. I would just go from feeling oppressed and then just suddenly loving loving the arts degree. Um, but I did see them as entirely separate and I, I didn't understand that the two fields had anything uh, to say to one another at all. And um, it wasn't until I uh, went to Harvard in, um, I guess it was 1982, that uh, I first saw the possibilities of the encounter between uh, international law and the humanities, and I did uh, a brilliant course uh, with uh, Sally Falk, a brilliant legal anthropologist, and um, that really started to change my ideas of the possibilities of law. So when you refer to those different uh different pieces of work that I've done over the last 30 years, uh, you might think, and it would be fairly true to say that I've been rather undiscerning in looking to the humanities to guide various projects. Uh, and you've, you've used this word uh, amateur a bit, and I that's something I absolutely recognise because I felt when I've looked at, for example, at feminist theory, when Christine, with Christine Chinkin and Shelley Wright and I, when we were writing that first article and we looked into feminist theory and we really just chose the feminist theory that we could understand. So, so we just glossed over it. It was just, it was incredibly amateurish. We were just looking around for things that we felt were somehow accessible and we would pick those up and think, okay, what, what is this saying to us? How can we use this to illuminate international law? So I, I sometimes feel I'm a bit like a tourist, perhaps, or an amateur. Um, and, and I feel there's certainly been occasions when, and I think you describe some of these conundrums so beautifully in your new book, International Law and the Politics of History, where you can sometimes be in an interdisciplinary with a capital I audience and um, your, I've certainly been on a number of occasions, I feel sort of exposed as an amateur by somebody saying, well, of course, you know, this absolutely basic work in the field. And I've had to say, actually, I don't know that. And, um, but I, I do think, and again, that's uh, what I like very much about your account is that the bricolage, as you refer to it, the, the craft approach 
has its own creativity and momentum. And looking back, I think the uh, insights and indeed just frankly the pleasure of reading a lot of different works in the humanities, just thinking this is intensely, it's a very pleasurable experience um, and to try to think through international law and it's right. But I, I, I think perhaps uh, like you, but in a much less theorised way, the interesting thing is I'm always drawn back to international law. So I've never thought about leaving this field. It's a field that continues to engage me. I think the issues it deals with are really significant. I do think that it can affect, it can't deliver everything, but I do think it can affect or inform some of the really big questions that we're facing and we're acutely aware of them now. So uh, I, I've never been tempted to abandon international law, but to draw on these disciplines to illuminate it. And um, I, what I found liberating, actually, in your book is that you say this so explicitly. Uh, you're talking specifically and you're engaging with a lot of historians, but I take it as a very generous invitation to make people like me perhaps uh, less mortified by their tourist or their amateur status and uh, saying, well, you can you can take this humanities discipline more broadly and think through and think through its politics. So that's that's what I would say. But but I think it's it's actually finding the words that you've used to describe your trajectory that I've found useful in reflecting on my own. I've never thought about it in that way before. So let, let me turn the tables and I, I demand the right to <laughs> take this take this chair back uh, before we invite uh, our friends and colleagues to um, to ask questions but here we are 15 years after you started Illa so what what sort of trends or strands or ideas can you see in the future of the relationship between international law and the humanities? Well, I have to say, I'm always a little hesitant about predicting the future, but I've never been more hesitant about predicting the future than I am after having lived through the past 18 months. So really anything could be going to happen next. Um, but I would say that the future of international law and the humanities is, of course, partly here with us in this Zoom session or perhaps listening to the podcast version. Um, I think the future is necessarily the vibrant community of scholars working on humanistic approaches to international law um, at Melbourne Law School, but of course, globally, um, who are doing work that is creative, courageous, um, critical, hopeful, and really vital for many of the challenges that the world faces. Um, I would say that, at least in my terms of my own work, um, the book begins and ends referring in part uh, to a piece by Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick called um, Paranoid Readings and Reparative Readings. Uh, and I feel quite strongly that we're at a moment where reparative readings are really called for. Um, that cynical and critical reason 
is doing a lot of work in the world to fuel um, some of the most dangerous forces and that um, it's really timely to do this kind of reparative work um, to imagine new worlds that we could inhabit. And I think really that collective attempt to imagine other worlds is part of what this community has been doing in practice and in theory, hospitable worlds that we can inhabit and that future generations can inhabit. Uh, and I think that is very likely the, the work that this field will, will still be doing uh, for, for some time to come. And if I had a secret hope for the future of international law and the humanities or of a really humanistic approach to international law, it would be that Hillary is elected to the International Court of Justice <laughs> in November. And just to underline the generosity of Hillary, uh, she's heading off tomorrow to start this campaigning in New York. So um, I feel very fortunate to have had the chance to have this conversation this afternoon with her, with you. Thank you, Anne. I, I do need a campaign manager, so that we can. <laughs> uh, Excellent. I'll start packing. <laughs> um, so now, dear audience, dear um, dear black screens on um, with just names of so many wonderful people from actually all around the world, I can see there. It's fantastic to have everybody, some who've got up early and some who've stayed up very late, but are there, this is a great chance to ask questions uh, about law and the humanities. I'm conscious just looking at some of the names, there are people who have done or are doing absolutely wonderful work in the field. So uh, are there so you can use the hand or the chat. Perhaps that's while you're thinking. And would you, um, what what projects are now on your horizon now that you've given birth to this to this book? What's what's what will you turn turn to mm. next? Uh, so I have um, the the book mentions in opening, and this was a way of making myself do it. <laughs> That it's really, it was supposed to just be the opening couple of pages to a book on the battle for the state, uh, which has been about a decade promised, I think, um, looking at the complicated ways in which international law has been involved in shaping what the state can be and who it can represent through um, numerous different uh, fields, subfields of international law. Uh, so I wrote some early pieces on that that focused on international economic law. The idea is that uh, the book covers um, many other ways in which international law participates in assembling and shaping what the state can be. And I have some vague optimism that in a, about a year it might actually be written. Um, and the other big project that I'm trying to bring to fruition is the, um, the monograph version of the um, project that I, that I and, and my group of wonderful 
postdoctoral and doctoral fellows were working on for the past five years on civil war and the transformation of international law. So I gave a uh, special course at the Hague Academy on that and um, all going well, I will also manage to write that up. Wonderful. Yes, I did notice. I thought that's, that's, that's a very good perhaps way of um, committing yourself publicly by talking about a book that's coming and I thought... This, this is then sort of the fear of shame. We'll make sure that you deliver. But I thought that was a remarkable act of, uh, of intellectual bravery. <laughs> um, so any, any questions? So I can see one from uh, John. I, I don't know if you'd like. To ask that I could read it out if, if, if you're willing to ask that question, unmute and ask that question, John. Please read it out, Heather, if you like. Okay, okay. well, it's whatever you'd prefer. I mean, sort of it'd be nice to hear your voice. <laughs> well, I can read if you like. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if critical work in international law is faced sounds very pompous, by its clear perception of the falsity of the coherence of a mainstream or orthodoxy and similarly the falsity fragility of the coherence of at least some of the intellectual frameworks outside of law to which we might like to appeal, i.e. Our, our humility, if that's what it is, to be somehow fated to be responsive, reactive, peripheral and equivocal. Are you sort of fated to be not all that important, not all that relevant? I see. So fated, not in a good sense. Fated as in, well, um, possibly, John, we may not be important and I'm willing to live with that. But um, so I feel reasonably strongly and have written about this in the latest book that we're really um, working against a false sense of necessity and coherence upon which appeals to the legitimacy of international adjudication in particular in relation to investment and to a lesser degree trade law rely. And I think that that is completely indefensible. Um, I think you can't you can't, I can't find any plausible account of the way in which, for instance, international investment adjudication uh, goes about interpreting investment treaties, which would suggest to me that they're, that that I'm wrong to say that what's being produced is a false sense of coherence, a false sense of objectivity and um, inevitability. So I, in that sense, I am an old-fashioned legal realist from the early 20s in a situation that I would say is very similar to the one in which legal realism was being developed, one in which a lot of stress, a lot of weight is being put onto adjudication as a means of achieving an extremely reactionary political project. And um, if 
challenging that means challenging my own legitimacy. I'm happy enough with that outcome. Thank you for that question, John. I see Kate Storr has her hand up. So, Kate, if you can unmute, uh, over to you and welcome. Thank you. Um, thanks. Sorry, I have a very um, boisterous grey hand in the background. Um, <laughs> thank you both. It's so lovely to see you both. And um, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the um, this recognition of the exhaustion of the tools of critique that have become really common and mainstream and very familiar moves to a lot of us, I think, and I think myself included, and the call to more reparative and creative approaches to this work resonates um, and it's, you know, in, in the world that we're living in at the moment. And I just wanted to ask you further about, um, and Hilary too, like where, from where are you drawing inspiration? From where at the moment do you see um, blueprints or indications of green shoots of directions to follow and um, of hope to be amplified uh, in this moment. Um. Mm. Um, I, it is sometimes on some days more of a struggle than others, Kate, of course, and I'm sure we all feel that, share that sense that it's a difficult time to feel enormously optimistic. Um, and to be optimistic about what we're handing on is really a bit of a challenge to institutionally, in a family sense, and in terms of, you know, for next generations more abstractly imagined on the planet. And I suppose in terms of um, what I find really powerful about that piece by um, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick is that she's really precisely responding to what I was responding to in the book, which was the sense of a hermeneutics of suspicion and a paranoid reading style, which, if anything, has radically intensified since she was writing because of how much social media thrives on um, paranoia, really, and um, outrage and the least kind reading you can do of anything, which will get you more attention and so forth, and that um, this was, I think, as we see with Facebook, destructive. So she doesn't have quick answers, and I don't think there are quick answers, but what she insists on, and I think you find this also in other work um, out of the sociology of critique, but also um, Rita Felsky's book, The Limits of Critique, and I talk about this a bit in the um, afterword to a book on backstage practices of international law. So I wrote a bit there because I felt that book was an example of work that wasn't um, cynical, uh, that was in, took a kind of critical intimacy rather than distance. Um, and there's a lot of work like that, of course, being done. And I think um, if I can speak generationally, I think you can't, the kind of current generation is looking for and moving towards work that has that reparative quality to it. I suppose I kind of find the hope much closer to home generally. So in, because I think we all in our lives try to make hospitable worlds for each other. I think people do that all the time. It's 
you know, I think we're less likely to do it in our writing and it's maybe because we don't want to look foolish or naive or um, we want to make it clear that no one can take us for granted, that we're really savvy. Like it's really hard not to look cynical because you feel, you know, it, it, it looks so foolish. But I wonder if it's time to just be willing to look foolish and naive a little bit more. <laughs> Hilary, do you, where would you look for? Yeah, well, I, I, I certainly agree with you that it's got to, sometimes it's got to be very, very um, close to home. But I was thinking in the context of the uh, national, there are a few international, but some of the climate change movements and the litigation and the way that uh, these cases have been brought and the protests have been led by very young people. And I suppose I've, I've thought that's something that certainly in my generation, that, that idea of mobilising even questions of law or mobilising legal institutions to get you somewhere just wasn't something that seemed possible. And I've been very struck by, in a range of different countries, the way that uh, some of these really urgent issues about climate change have been put into different legal frameworks. I found that very, very inspiring. But it's, it's, uh, it's something that is, um, I, I think Anne's put a finger on something about how one, uh, the tone that one adopts and what's taken seriously in scholarship. And I think it's true and it's, it's uh, an indictment that, in a sense, uh, scholarship has been associated with a much more pessimistic trend in thinking, which has a fairly sort of self-reinforcing atmosphere to it too. So now I'm just conscious with time going, and there is a question that I've, I've promised to read out because our interlocutor has a bad internet connection. So, and this is one for you, but I think it connects nicely with Kate's one too, from, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it uh, properly, Phil Sanguinai. So he's saying, I have a question in relation to foregrounding the law in the in interdisciplinary research. In the interview you did, Anne, with Alexandra Kemmerer, you said you want to claim the space for law and conceptual innovation because the critical left seems to have abandoned that space. I wonder if Professor Orford could elaborate more. Yes. Um, I was thinking about that um, partly at the time because I'd been reading um, the book by Stephen Tellis, I think his name is, on the conservative legal movement in the US. And perhaps he presents the account a little bit more in a bit more of a coherent way than it actually worked out. But you have a real sense of, you know, a 30-year time period in which um, the conservative legal movement in the US set out to realise a whole other vision for the law. And um, I often find that when I'm reading, say, someone like Henry Kissinger and the things that he was arguing, for instance, for NATO as one example, um, how it should have this mission outside of the North Atlantic 
And the kind of reactions he got from everyone saying, that's just imperialism, you can't possibly be serious. And now it's just completely dominant as a way of understanding the role of NATO or what self-defence should mean today. So I'm often impressed, I guess, by how malleable and plastic the law is and how good um, some people seem to be at moving the law very systematically. Now, of course, there are conditions to that, and the condition to that shift is the dominance of the US as a superpower for a particular period. So I'm not suggesting if we'd all just been thinking harder, we could have done something to challenge US superpower dominance. That would be a ridiculously idealist way of thinking. But on the other hand, um, I do think there's been perhaps less interest in kind of taking the law apart and putting it back together differently on the left. And as I've said a number of times before, I've always been struck by Peter Goodrich's argument that this is the critic's love of the law, that the critic is actually the one who loves the law so much that they won't touch it and they just kind of leave it in its perfect horribleness rather than taking it apart and putting it back together and, doing, and turning it into something else. And perhaps, you know, you need to give up that love of the law as, um, and that comes back to my argument about our sense of desire or fantasy about the law. So maybe we should just take it apart. Well, I think that's, that's uh, a great moment perhaps to conclude our conversation but and thanks so much for well giving me a sense you you told me a lot that I didn't know about the beginnings of uh of Illa and I think it's given where it's gone over the last um 15 years since you started it it's and had uh Diotto as a director and now uh Sandhya Bahuja as the director. It's been uh, an astonishing, I think, part of Melbourne Law School. And it's really, uh, it's it's such a rich and vibrant place. Even now that it's had to move online, I've been really struck by how much ILA has managed to maintain some of its particular energy and flair, even though it's been entirely online. So uh, I'll look forward to the 20th celebration and uh but thank you so much Anne for your directness and your willingness to share your both your own intellectual journey and that of international law and the humanities and thanks to everybody for coming along and uh for those terrific questions so I think this this will be recorded and uh will be available online in due course Thank you, Hilary, and thank you, everyone, who's uh, been here. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.